How do you handle them? Especially when you're trying to communicate something really important. Maybe some of you have been teachers in the past. Maybe you're teachers now. And you are trying to get a lesson to your students. This important principle you've been maybe trying to communicate all semester. And you are, you're just driving the point home. And then a kid raises his hand, a student raises his hand, and says, is this going to be on the test? Or can I go to the bathroom? You're a parent. And you're with one of your children, and you are communicating empathy and sympathy towards one of your kids and showing this is how you have empathy for your brother or sister. This is how you have sympathy. You need to work on these things. You know, you're just, you're bringing it home. And then they say, is this mean I'm going to have to give up treats? Do I have to give up the computer? You know, double face palm at that point is very like, oh. You're a mentor. You're a boss. You're talking to one of your employees, giving them life lessons, things they need to gather for the rest of their career. I mean, you are driving it home. You are given the speech of speeches. And the employee interrupts and says, is this going to affect my health plan? Oh, tangents. Interruptions. Isn't that the worst? When it, it's, it's interrupting your point. You just don't get it. I'm trying to communicate something and you see totally something different. Well, today we're going to see a speech. Well, what was trying to be a speech that gets interrupted. Not just once, not twice, but three times. My hope is in seeing the interruptions, we might see ourselves, but more importantly, see the character and the nature of the teacher. So let's check out this speech, shall we? A speech full of interruptions. It's in John chapter 13, verses 31 through 14, 14. It's in your worship guide or on page 900 in your pew Bible. Please pay attention as we read God's word. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man, glor- now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have, if you have love for one another. And Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. And Peter said to him, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. 
In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place uh, for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself, that where I am you may also, may, may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. And Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. And Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. And Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, and the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. The word of the Lord. We're just joining us. We've been going through the book of John, and it's one of the Gospels. The Gospel means good news, the proclamation of who Jesus is. You might not know this, but there are four accounts Uh, four Gospels of Jesus' life, written by different authors in different places over 30 years. Each of them tell kind of different stories of Jesus, but they all have one coherent message, that Jesus is the Messiah. He died on the cross and rose from the dead to save sinners. Now this is compelling evidence that four different authors from four different places over 30 years Um, looking at different accounts and um, eyewitness accounts and hearing from different people would have this coherent message. I encourage you, it's Easter time, it's it's Lent time. It's a time where people talk about Jesus that might come to church once in a while. I encourage you, you might want to read one of these Gospels. Just for literature's sake, it's, it's just good reading, you know? Considering that one billion people on this planet believe in it, there's another good reason to read it. Maybe you want to relate to other people. It's not just a coffee table book, which maybe the Bible is in your home. Maybe you should read it. Check it out. Read one of these Gospels and hear what it says. But I tell you, beware. There's a motive in it. The motive is that you would believe. Just like John says, believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that in believing, you would have life. Well, there's a uniqueness to this specific book, the book of John. It's probably the most unique of all the Gospels in telling stories that the others do not. In fact, John spends a lot of his time in his book reenacting and talking about telling an eyewitness account of the last 24 hours of Jesus going to the cross. In fact, he spends five chapters on what is called the upper room, 
which we're in right now. This upper room was a place where the disciples came and Jesus to have a meal together, a Passover meal. That's what Jews celebrated, and they were Jews, to celebrate Jesus passing, God passing over the Israelites and saving them and delivering them from Egypt. So this was the Passover meal that was celebrated. And here Jesus is celebrating this meal with his disciples in the upper room. This is Da Vinci's The Last Supper painting. And here Jesus is giving his speech, his final discourse to these disciples. Telling them, this is what I want you to know before I go to the cross. This is what I want you to hear. This is an important speech. Well, constantly as we've gone through John, we see Jesus says, the hour is coming, the hour is coming. Now the hour is upon them. Look in verse 31. When he had gone out, talking about Judas who had left. I mean, Jesus said one would betray and Judas had left. And really, now the ball starts rolling towards Jesus' crucifixion. The hour is coming. And the tension is rising in this upper room. Now they're saying, wait, Jesus, you're no longer to be with us? This is what you're talking about, that you're going to leave us? It's, it's coming to fruition? He says one will betray them, and they're wondering what is going on. Who is going to betray Jesus? So the tension is rising about what Jesus is having to go through. And Jesus is trying to communicate this to them. What is important for them to know before he has to go to the cross? And here, he communicates some really important principles jam-packed in just these few verses, verses 31 through 35. And I'm going to quickly review these three principles he's trying to communicate to them. Number one is this. The Father and the Son are glorified in the cross. You see, in Jesus going to the cross, we see God's plan for salvation. It's intimately linked. God's plan and Jesus. So that when we see Jesus go to the cross, we see the glory of God. That's number one. Jesus, the Father and the Son are glorified in the cross. Number two. Jesus cares for his disciples. He cares for those that follow him. Here he says, little children, yet a little while why I am with you. He calls them children. It's very fitting. Have you ever been to a Seder, which is a Passover meal? It's usually the head of the household, the patriarch, is the one that leads the meal and asks questions of the children. It's really a learning time for kids. And that's what Jesus is saying. I am the head of this household. And I am communicating to you, my children, what I am about to do. Little children, hear me out. Which is very fitting in the questions. Because if you've ever been to a Seder, the kids ask lots of questions. Here the children are again going to ask lots of questions of Jesus. So number two, Jesus cares for his disciples. Number three, he has a mission for them. Verse 34, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. 
By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. He's saying, this mission is for you that you've seen in me. I've washed your feet. I've served you. I have sacrificed for you. And now I will lay down my life for you. This example of love I've given for you, to you, you now should display towards others. Okay, great principles. If you're a Christian, you say, yeah, I buy into that. That's great stuff. But the real question is, when the heat is turned up, what do you believe? That's always a question in all all our lives. When the tension comes, the anxiety is on, what do you really believe? And that is what's happening to disciples. The heat is getting turned up. The hour is coming. And you know, disciples, they could tune out Jesus' hard teachings before, right? The 12. Oh yeah, that's just what Jesus says once in a while, right? That's just some of the crazy stuff he says. You know, but we're around him and hanging with him. We know what really is going to happen. But wait a second. Now they're finding it's going to apply to them. What is it going to mean for them? And now they're saying to Jesus, wait, is this on the test? (laughs) Is this, what are you exactly saying is going to happen? This is a good question. What does it really mean to follow Jesus? To be his disciples? I think readers of John are asking that same question. What does it mean for us to follow him? If I'm reading this, what does it mean to really to be a follower of Christ? And maybe that question is for you too this morning. What does it really mean to follow him? What does it mean to be his disciple? Maybe you're the hand raiser right in class. Right? When you hear, uh-oh, this is trouble, it's going to be on the test, what is she exactly saying, what is he exactly saying, you are right like this, you know, raising the hand. And we have one of those people in this story, don't we? The hand raiser, the interrupter, the one that says, wait, 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 what's going on? And it's Peter. You know, Peter seems to skip through after the the new commandment Jesus gives and he he goes back, whoa, 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 you just said before that, you said, where you are going, we cannot come? What are you saying, Jesus? Where you are going, we cannot follow? He is raising his hand. He is interrupting. He is wondering, is this really on the test? Is this really on the test? What you mean? And Jesus communicates to Peter. See, Peter, you can't go where I'm going. See, the glory of God isn't military victory. It isn't me being able to claim Israel as a land and kick out the Romans. No, the glory of God is me saving humanity. It is something that no human can do. But a perfect God in Christ can. 
Not even Peter can do this, but Christ can. Peter's good intentions are so noble. Isn't that great? In a cozy room, you know, good food, maybe you got some wine in you. You know, you can say, I'll do anything. But it's less attractive when you're in a darkened garden with a hostile mob. What will, Jesus, what will Peter actually say in that place when the heat is turned on? <laughs> you know, I think there's, there's two problems with Peter. There's many problems with Peter, but there's two problems with Peter right here. One is his ignorance. His ignorance of human weakness. And two, his haughty independence. Oh, I am not that bad. Oh, I can do it on my own. But Jesus, throughout the book of John, has been examining hearts, hasn't he? From Nicodemus, to the woman at the well, to the crowds. He sees what's in people's hearts. And here again, he goes to his disciples' hearts. He knows in times of fear and doubt, there is lack of faith and all comes tumbling down, even for Peter. And that is why he comforts him. Look with me, verse one. Let not your hearts be troubled. The Greek is, do not let them tremble. Do you know what the most common command in Scripture is? What does God command us to do the most in Scripture? Do not be afraid. That's his number one imperative that he says throughout Scripture. And here, even in the midst of Peter's interruption, in the midst of him giving this great speech, he says, do not fear. He comforts them. And what does he say? I'm preparing a place for you. KJV, a mansion with many rooms. I don't think it's just talking about an eschatology future and heaven, but it's talking about I'm preparing a place in your hearts now for me to dwell and for a future place to come. This is very intriguing because most teachers at that time, the Greeks and other great philosophers, when they were about to go and giving their farewell speeches, they said, pursue wise things. Develop your individual skills. Work on this or that. Jesus contrasts with all those teachers. Instead, he invites people to have dependence upon him. He says, Peter, Believe in me. Have your dependence upon me. Michael Sharp, he's a special envoy uh, with the United Nations to Congo. And uh, Michael Sharp goes into the bush in Congo where there's much civil war and civil strife. And many of these people have left towns and villages and gone to the bush where there are rebels and guerrillas fighting different people. There's been much bloodshed in that country over lots of time. And Michael Sharp has lots of conversations with these militant leaders. 
And it's amazing as a white guy in, in Congo being able to converse with these guys with, you know, that are murderers, that steal children, that cause civil strife. Michael's been able to have some great conversations. And a lot of his conversations go a little bit like this. He finds that these people reminisce about the good old days, these rebels. They say, I remember how Congo was. I remember when we ruled over Rwanda, where we had people serving us. Just remember the good old days. And what Michael does when he goes and speaks to these guys and talks with them, he says, you know, was it really that good? And he says, how's it going for you now? And this is one thing he identifies in what he tries to get at. He finds that they are homesick. You're homesick, aren't you? You want it to be a certain way. You want it to be back to where it was. But here, you have fled your home, and now you live in the bush. Don't you want to go back home? And in his conversations with these people about going back home and realizing the home that they remembered, it was not as good as it was, and they can actually go back to a place and make it better for their kids, people have left their guns behind and gone back to their villages. Peter, disciples, you are homesick. You're homesick. And you think, oh, we want the good old days where we rule, where Israel's on top, where Roman doesn't Roman rule doesn't rule over us anymore. He says, No. Children of God, I am preparing a better place for you. There is a greater home. How about you? When the heat is turned up. What do you run to? I wish I was back to this time in my life. Or maybe if I just had a cabin like my parents did, that would be home. Or maybe if all my kids came back and we sat around the fire and we just drank hot chocolate and had marshmallows, that would be great. Or maybe if I just had a bigger home, it would be fine. No, I am preparing a place for you, a home for you that is greater than what you could expect and what you remember. Jesus is comforting them. He is helping them because they are running to things and ideas in the tension instead of running to him and what he offers in the glory on the cross, which they cannot do themselves. The interruptions don't stop, though, don't they? Of course, Thomas gets in on the interruptions. Verse 5, Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? You know, Peter speaks for himself. He's the one who interrupts. Thomas is a little bit more measured. You might be that person in class, you know, that says, oh, oh yeah, that, he, he's really off the wall. But we, we all have a question as a class about what's on the test. We're all kind of wondering, 
you know, what is this way you're talking about? How are we supposed to get there? Tell me the steps. What, what equation am I supposed to know to do well to get to this house? And Jesus says it's not an equation. It's not steps. It's a relationship with me. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life, he is saying. She's saying, you have to follow me and be relationship with me. That's what it means to know the Father. You know, what if I met Aaron for the first time and I said to her, I said, you know, um, how am I going to have four kids with you? And how am I going to marry you? And how am I going to have a great life with you? That's the first thing I said to her. She's like, what are you talking about? Who are you? You know, it starts with relationship. It doesn't start with, oh, there, no, it's just, God, I want to have a relationship with you. And then through that relationship, we get there. It's knowing the person. I have to know Aaron first. It's not just, oh, let's talk about four kids first. No, how do I know her and be in relationship with her that over time it builds so we get to the place where we have kids and a life together and all of those things. It's dynamic. You know what's sad about the valley? Maybe it's sad about religion in general. That we can know all these things about God, but we cannot know him. We can know theology and know we're supposed to go at Easter and and we're supposed to go at Christmas Eve. We're supposed to know these steps. We're not supposed to eat fish, you know, eat meat and only fish on Friday. We knew all these things, but we actually don't know him. In fact, sometimes we can be a professional Christian without actually relating and talking with him. Thomas, I am the way. You know the Father by being in relationship with me. It's probably not the only problem that people have with Jesus' response here. It's very exclusive. You know, I am the way and the truth and life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Not a very positive thing to say in our pluralist environment. Come on, there's got to be other ways to God. Why there's have to be just one way? The thing is, and Keller says this really well, if you see a relationship with God as relationally, you can see how it can be just one way. Back to the, my idea of dating Aaron, if she said, you know, if you really want to know me, you should know that I like flowers. I want to be listened to. I want to go on dates. And what if I said to her, no, that's very exclusive. I, I, I don't do that. You're putting pressure on me. She'd probably say, oh, well, then you can forget a relationship with me. The thing is, that is what God is saying to us. 
He's saying, I want a relationship with you. And it is a give and take. Look how Jesus gives the give and take here. He listens to them. He lets them interrupt. He hears their questions. He gives and takes with them. But then he says to them, I should be able to interrupt you in your life. I should be able to be exclusive in your life and interrupt you. Can Christ interrupt us? Well, one last interruption here. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. And Jesus responds, Have I, not, have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. There are two Greek words for see. One of the Greek words for see is to see with your eye, your retina, to see something. The other is to see with your heart. It's the idea of, oh, a joke that you might not understand. They say, oh, I see. I finally get it. It's to finally understand. And here he's saying, Philip, I want you to finally understand. In me, you see the Father. My life is a testament to his existence. Do you truly see God through seeing what I am doing and shaping? And have you not seen it? He's kind of, he's kind of sad. I've been with you so long and you still do not know me. Kenneth Lonergan, he's the Academy Award director of Manchester by the Sea. It's a, a movie, I don't recommend it for children. It's a movie about tragedy, depression, something that Lonergan has gone through himself. And Lonergan uh, chose some of Handel's Messiah to be in the movie. In fact, the song that you heard Adrian sing and them perform earlier. And Lonegrin was on NPR. NPR was asking him, they said, you know, why did you choose this music, Handel's Messiah, for this movie? And the interviewer knew that Lonegrin was an atheist. Why did you choose this religious text, this, this Handel's Messiah, which uses the Gospels to communicate. And this is what Lonegren says. I'm going to just read it word for word so you know I'm not nitpicking, okay? This is intriguing. And I want you to think about Philip's question to Lonegren's statement here. You know, that piece that you just played on NPR is so beautiful. And one thing about it that occurred to me that I didn't mention when you were playing it is that your whole spine just relaxes when you hear those chords and you hear that singing. And also the text of that piece is so, if you could only believe in that. It's all about, you know, he shall feed his flock and come on to him all ye that are heavy laden and he shall give you rest. And this idea that God is going to take care of you and comfort you and relieve you of your burdens and relieve you of your sorrow is a wonderful, if imaginary, idea. But there is something in the world that does that. Sometimes it's nature. 
And sometimes it's music. And sometimes it's love from people who care about you. Sometimes it's just quiet. Please hear this. I don't know what it is. But there are so many things that are analogous to what I suppose is the religious feeling of being cared for by a supernatural entity in whom I don't believe. Oh. Philip, don't you see God in me? Don't you see his glory and his love? How I care for my children. How I wrap them in my arms. How I care for them. This is the glory of God on the cross. How I die and I raise from the dead. Don't you see this is the Lord acting in the world? You might be crying out for that yourself. Your friends are crying out. There is something there that wants me. That I want to feel needed. I want to be a part of a home. That I want to be cared for. Where does it come from? I don't know what it is. It's the Lord Jesus Christ who is God himself that has dwelled among us. That has lived a perfect life. That has died in the cross and rose from the dead. That is the glory of God. That even people that feel like they're far from him, his transcendence is there. Well, after he's been interrupted a few times, Jesus gets back to the mission, right? To love one another. And he's, he talks about what will happen if this love goes out. These disciples will do great things. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. There will be glorious things that will happen through these 12 guys. Another one is added later. Judas leaves. They will revolutionize the world in their love for others. Will you let Christ interrupt your life so that his glory would be shown? So mighty things would happen? Will you display his glory by maybe, oh, maybe I should give something up because it gets in the way of his glory. Maybe I should live a different way because I am not displaying Christ in what I'm doing. Maybe I should take a sacrifice and take a step in my life to show forth his power to others. You know Michael Sharp? That guy that worked for the United Nations? He didn't start working for the United Nations. In fact, he's a boy from Kansas who went to a Mennonite school, he was a Christian, 34 years old. And when he was 20s, he 
moved to the Congo. Doing this thing of talking to these rebels and listening to them and talking about the home with them. In fact, 1,600 rebels left their guns and went back to their homes through just the work of Michael Sharp. And the United Nations saw this missionary working and said, what are you doing? And they said, we got to have you. And they hired him. Three days ago, Michael Sharp's body was found in the Congo, dead. How much did he love them? How much did he love these people in the Congo that he gave his life for them? One of these people that he led out who ended up working for Michael said, he was not my boss. He was my brother. This is the glory of God. That he would lay down his life for you. That you would know what love is. So that you would sacrifice and love others. Will you take that interruption? Will you be interrupted by that? If you want to be, I encourage you. You can stand up and you can come and take communion. You can say, I need this interruption in my life. I need this love in my life. I need this transformation because I can't do it on my own. I need reliance upon the Father through the Son by the power of the Spirit. This is not a Presbyterian table. It's not a Mayus Road table. This is a table for those that say, I need Christ. 